by the Institute of Palestine Studies and is the outcome of a number of discussions between activists and academics from South Asia and the Arab world. Today is the second in the series of talks that began with Dr. Amrit Wilson exploring the relationship between Hindutva and Zionism. And the text of that talk will be published by the IPS and will hopefully also be available in Arabic. Today, I'm delighted that Professor Atazia will be talking on Israeli settler state, comma, India neocolonialism and the case of, case of Kashmir. Our next talk will be on Thursday, 31st January, 2023, uh, at the same time, 6 p.m. Palestine time, by renowned activist Tariq Ali, who will be talking on the global implications of the India-Israel relationship. We are holding this talk while recognizing the intensification of Israeli tax on Gaza and the continuing oppression of the Palestinian people. Our intention in this series of talks is to offer a basis for solidarity with those struggling for freedom and justice in the Arab and South Asian worlds. Whilst our first talk attracted a personal attack on me by the sources of the Israeli settler colonial project, the necessity for voices to stand up to injustice is ever more pressing. And we hope that these talks are part of a opportunity to build networks of resisting peoples so that we can learn from each other's experiences. And today, I'm really delighted that we're a speaker who's produced some of the best academic and popular literature on the Kashmir struggle and resistance movement. Uh, Atazia is a political anthropologist, poet, short fiction writer, and columnist. I think to earn money, she's an associate professor at the Department of Anthropology and Gender Studies program at the University of Northern Colorado in the US. Uh, Atta is the author of Resisting Disappearances, Military Occupation and Women's Activism in Kashmir, which is an amazing book if you can get hold of it, which won the 2020 Gloria Andalusa Honorable Mention Award, uh, the Public Anthropologist Award and Advocate of the Year 2021. She has been featured in the FemList 2021, a list of 100 women from the Glo Global South working on critical issues. She's the co-editor of Can You Hear Kashmiri Women Speak? Resisting, women, resisting Occupation in Kashmir, and a desolation called peace. Uh, I'm really happy that uh, Atta is also a poet, uh, and she's published a poetry collection called The Frame, and another collection is forthcoming. Uh, in 2008 and 13, Atta's ethnographic poetry on Kashmir won an award for the Society for Human Humanistic Anthropology. She's the, she's the founder editor of Kashmir Lit, and is the co-founder of Critical Kashmir Studies Collective, an interdisciplinary study network of scholars working on the Kashmir region. Today, she will talk to us for about 20 minutes, uh, which will be followed by a question and answer. Please put your questions in the chat box in Zoom if you're joining us in that way, or in the chat function on Facebook as we are going along. Also, if you can please share the Facebook link on your social media feeds, uh, that would be really appreciated. I'd like to hand over to Atta. Thank you so much, Professor Kaldra. And thank you so much to um, the Palestinian studies and also uh, Professor Ali for inviting me for this talk. And um, I had prepared some remarks that were, that were written remarks just in the interest of time, but I feel like the way we format it now, which is 15 to 20 minutes and then we have Q&A, I'll just let go of the paper and just uh, talk about 
uh, my topic today, which is Israeli settler state, Indian neocolonialism and the case of Kashmir. One of the earliest discussions that I was having with the organizers when we were talking about this uh, panel today, this talk today was, is India learning from Israel? And is this Israelification or, you know, all those things that we think of when we think about the two parallel uh, struggles of the Palestinian and Kashmiri people. So <clears throat> one of the things, and I know that uh, the ground has already been laid by Professor Wilson with regards to the Zionism and thinking about Hindutva. So I don't really need to go there, but I did want to say at the outset that while we think of Kashmiris and the Kashmiri struggle, and when we think about the Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle, and both of them parallel, uh, it does come across that there are a lot of similarities because they were one of the, or the two of the oldest um, issues or disputes on the agenda of United uh, Nations. But at the same time, there are a lot of differences which we need to keep in mind. And also uh, to think about Israelification of Kashmir would not be doing justice to either of the two struggles. So I would, uh, which is why I felt like that I have to really separate Israeli settler state and see what kind of learning India does, if at all, from uh, the Israeli settler state. And what does Indian neocolonialism look like? And what is actually the case of Kashmir? So what this talk today does is uh, tries to reiterate that India has its own brand of settler colonialism in Kashmir. And that's something that we need to uh, consider. It's its own historical structure. And there is transference of technologies from Israel to India and back in, there's a lot of back and forth right now. And we know how friendly uh, they have gotten over the last 50 years and how friendly they are now and how in sync with each other they are. That's, that's very palpable uh, through the technologies of punishment that are used on people. Um, so we'll come to that later, but I <clears throat> just to uh, talk about a little bit about Indian neocolonialism or Indian imperialism, so to speak. Uh, we don't have to go too far. We have a very recent example of what happened in Kashmir in 2019, even though the thing that happened in 2019 in Kashmir was not something new. Um, so just to go back to the event in 2019, August 5th, uh, what happened was that India unilaterally and militarily took away Kashmir's autonomy. And when we think about Kashmir's autonomy, what did that look like? That that needs to be reiterated a little bit. Uh, that looked like it, it was uh, it was a it was sort of a negotiation that had been done by client politicians of Kashmir in 1947. Uh, with uh, the Indian politicians, and they had negotiated this uh, this status for Kashmir, which was a semi-autonomous uh, status for the region, where they would have uh, control over some of the things. Uh, India would have control over some of the things, which was communication, currency, and foreign affairs. Of course, defense is kind of like implicit in all of that. And then Kashmiris would take care of the local governance and they would take care of everything else that came under uh, administ administering the, uh, the territory. So that was the that was kind of a truce that they had come uh, to in 1947 and it, it came into effect in 1949. And after that, and part of that was also that there is going to be a plebiscite under the United Nations mandate and the plebiscite would decide whether Kashmiris wanted to uh, go with Pakistan or they would uh, want to go with India. <clears throat> and 
But implicit in all of that is that Kashmiris also want to be independent, which was not part of what the uh, the fleeing colonists had left as one of the resolutions. But it was, again, thinking about these larger democracies that Kashmiris had to join the larger nation states. Uh, but Kashmiris were, even in that point in time, for independence and still are for independence. And that is one of the key um, uh, key issues that Kashmiris are fighting for as their resistance continues in different phases and different forms. So 2019 was kind of this watershed uh, mark in Kashmir's history in a different way, which was it it, it became re-internationalized. And the reason I say it's re-internationalized was because from 1989, what India had done, what India had told the rest of the world was that there was this armed struggle that started in 1989 because democracy had failed in Kashmir. And the, there's, there's a lot of invisibilization that happens with all of those narratives that have been thrown around and that the world has also bought and sold as well. So one of the things that thinking about democracy in Kashmir, democracy never existed in Kashmir. And I also have problems with a democracy per se, but that's a separate thing altogether. But democracy, as we know, people by the people, for the people, of the people, that kind of a government that never existed in Kashmir because Kashmir is a disputed territory. You cannot have elections in a disputed territory. And that is what uh, the United Nations told uh, India in 1950s when it held one of its first elections uh, that this is a this is an out of order situation. And the case is sub uh, because remember, both Palestine and Kashmir were on UN agenda as disputed territories, which needed a resolve. So <clears throat> the elections that was the election that was held first and foremost was never, it was never a legal way of uh, governing Kashmir. But then uh, occupied territories also need to be governed. So it could be kind of seen under that rubric. But India took that as something that laid a foundation of what it calls a democracy, but it, it's a weaponization of dem democratic politics, basically. It's a weaponization of uh, tools of democracy, and one of them is the electoral system. So it put that in place, and then you had client politicians that fell in place and who would run along with that infrastructure that was created around the quote-unquote democracy. So that's what we see happening from 1950s onwards, uh, they, they set into this motion, into motion this politics of democracy, which till very recently has been uh, been very easy for the rest of the international community to, uh, uh, to kind of run with and to understand Kashmir through, but it's not a lens that Kashmiris look at it from. It's a, it's a completely imposed lens. So a lot of people, uh, they kind of, uh, they collate that when elections are happening in a place, democracy is also in place. And I think that's something that has created layers of invisibility around Kashmir for the last 74 years, uh, so to speak. And of course, we also see something similar happening in the Palestinian territories as well, <clears throat> occupied territories as well. So that's that's kind of a little bit about thinking about Indian neocolonialism, like how do we see it? Uh, how does it hide within what the world sees as a democracy? Because both Israel and Palestine, uh, both Israel and um, India profess to be these largest democracies. That's what Modi said to the Prime Minister of Israel very recently, that they are the largest democracies in their own regions, so to speak. <clears throat> and I think that needs to be considered. What do we see as a democracy? Like when you see 
uh, an occupation, a full-fledged occupation where people are repressed. If we think about Kashmir in this moment, everything has been criminalized, even breathing as a Kashmiri, Kashmiri identity has been criminalized. And I think both Palestine and Kashmiri, uh, Kashmiris, they are fighting for the right to exist, basically call themselves who they are under these the, 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 the camouflages that the quote-unquote democracies have uh, created around them and at their issues. <clears throat> so 2019, what does 2019 tell us about the neocolonialism in Kashmir? And what does it also say about the, the post-colonial school of thought? And what does it say about post-coloniality or the post-colonial thought that has been uh, used as a lens to understand India and the, that has also been used as a lens to understand other non-Western cultures? I think it's very important for us in this moment to understand that post-colonialism has done much violence to issues like Kashmir and a Palestinian issue because it, they don't really exist. Uh, in context of Kashmir, if you look at post-colonial literature that kind of thinks about India and that has uh, the subaltern school of thought, till very recently, no one even talked about Kashmir. And Kashmir has been a, an issue for the last 74 years uh, from the creation of India and Pakistan, but also an issue before that. How does it get so invisibilized and no one asks a question about how is it that Kashmiris are still restive and resisting under what has been created, the superstructure around them of a nation state that calls itself a democracy. How is it that 70,000 plus people can be killed, both combatants and non-combatants? And you can have laws in place that criminalize a small assembly from four people to the bigger assemblies, whatever people can have to protest. How can a media be criminalized to such an extent that today Kashmiri journalists are not able to write as freely as they, as any press should be writing about? How is it that you can have uh, Israeli, uh, the the innovative, whatever the, the, the kind of uh, surveillance technologies that they are creating, which India is buying and using very easily, Pegasus very recently, how is it that it can be found on uh, the phones and the electronic devices of journalists and other opinion leaders? And, uh, you know, this, this violation of privacy that happens. And when I say violation of pri privacy, I even, it's the, it's an irony because in Kashmir, there is no privacy. Just like when we think about uh, Palestine, uh, people in these, uh, these, these repressed and these occupied territories, these p indigenous people who are dispossessed, they have no right to privacy because their lives are between checkpoints, between bunkers, between crackdowns. And that is actively happening inside Kashmir at this moment while India is tom-toming uh, democracy. And I think uh, the, the issue of democracy and the, the, the discomfort that we have uh, with the kind of democracy that is imposed, whether whatever you want to call it, illiberal, uh, you know, progressive, or whatever you want to call it. But I think inherently we have to think about what does democracy mean for us in the non-West? And the reason I kind of also think about non-West is also thinking about indigenous people who are under siege at this moment and that solidarity that we need regarding the superstructure of democracy that has been created and has been imposed on people and that we are buying and defending in our own zones. And, you know, for a Kashmiri, a long time back, someone told me that do not vote is my right. Uh, and that made me think of what we think about these democratic systems that 
they're not democracy for us. It depends uh, how, whether it's a democracy or not. It depends on which vantage you're looking at it from. And that also makes me think about the United States as a settler state. We have completely forgotten that in United States is the mother settler state. And then we think about the Israeli settler state and how that Eurocentric democracy is also kind of making foray into, and Eurocentric democracy is not a kind structure. It's a kind structure to the ones that it is settling. It's not a kind structure to ones that it is imposing upon. And that's the irony of me also being here uh, in United States, in a settler state, being part of a settler horde, being part of a set, set of a settler scholarship as well, that is looking at uh, its own dispossession back in Kashmir. So that's an irony there that we have to think about. And that also makes me think about post-colonialism a lot, because I feel like at, in this moment, we have to think about the way the school of post-colonial thought has been deployed and who it has served and who it has invisibilized. And I think it has invisibilized Kashmiris as much it has invisibilized uh, Palestinians. And the struggles don't look genuine anymore. They look like they are very easy to be diluted and bought as quote unquote Muslim terrorism, Islamic terrorism, or what have you, and that 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 has become so sought after uh, 9/11 as well. So I think that that's where I will end. I don't know if I was able to uh, talk about everything that I needed to, but it's already 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. But I'll take questions, and I think most of those uh, things that might still be. Uh, a little hazy and that I haven't touched upon uh, will be talked about in the Q&A. And I think that's where I'll stop. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, we've got two uh, questions already. I don't know if you can see them in the chat box, but otherwise I'll, I'll read them. Um, so this is a question via email from Shafiq Hussein. Uh, and I mean, this is quite a specific question around the British government, actually. It's saying, how can Kashmiris make the British government accountable for not fulfilling its duty under the Indian Independence Act to the Kashmiris for self-rule, as was done for Pakistan and India? So there's two ways that I can answer this question. One is to get bogged down by history and go back into the nitty gritty of history. And the other is really asking ourselves is this question in this quote unquote post 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 colonial moment is do we really need the kind of uh, solutions and resolutions that the fleeing uh, colonials left us? I mean, when Kashmir was being sort of like, for, for some time, Kashmir was completely independent. It was under the, the ruling monarch at that time uh, from let's say October 20, uh, sorry, uh, October, uh, August 15 to October 27. So Kashmir was independent under its own king, still thinking what to do. And in the West part of Kashmir, there was already an uprising that had started that has been narrativized as uh, as kind of as 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 a fight to against not not just the monarch but against India as well, like against what was happening in that time. It, it's not narrativized as a uh, as a rebellion. It's not as a rebellion and a revolution. It's not narrativized like that. It's narrativized as if it was happening, something very untoward was happening that these people just uh, got into this uprising and they were restive and they were fighting against the um, monarch. And it was kind of this Islamic, it had this as uh, the stereotypically used, I'm not using the word as it's stereotypically used, but just for the sake of 
how it's deployed as it had a jihadi element, it had this and that. So it wasn't really narrativized as people in West Kashmir being, uh, there were these 50,000 fighters who had fought in World War and they had gone back, they knew how to use arms and ammunition and they wanted to free this land, they wanted to free their land. So there's a rebellion and a revolution rising from there and uh, working against the Maharaja who later flees. And when the British, they're already stepped in, Indian politicians have already stepped in 10 years back into diplomacy with Kashmiris and who later became their client politicians. So when you see this region in that moment, you don't really see anyone narrativizing that Kashmiris had actually risen up in rebellion to, uh, to free their land, which what became Azad Kashmir. And that also has been narrativized as if something has been taken away from India. But we have to ask ourselves this question, like who are we answering to this in this moment? Do we still have to go back to these late 19th, early 20th centuries resolutions that this fleeing colonists are leaving us with? And then we kind of like want to stick by them. There's not even the, the, the there's not even a resolution for independence of Kashmir. It doesn't even exist in that. And that's how it's also, that's how Kashmir resistance many times is completely undermined that you either have to join Pakistan or you have to join India. And that's all, all there is uh, in it for you. So do, do we really want to go back into what the Independence Act was? I'm not saying that we don't have to, you know, I'm just thinking through the lens of like, do we really need to, there's so, so much has happened. We are reaching a point where, we're really like just looking at the environment, borders are becoming completely irrelevant, uh, that big countries are becoming completely irrelevant. And I, I, we don't know what the future holds. So do we, do we really want to go back and say, hey, you know, we were legitimate. And are these really, how do we consider the British government at that time, which was a, for all practical purposes, a colonial government, a legitimate government? And that we have to abide by. I feel like these are questions we have to ask. And I think Critical Kashmir scholars in the last 15 to 20 years, they have produced so much work around thinking of the contestations of uh, what they have been asking, what is legal and what is not. Because, you know, if you think about the Indian uh, Indian rule right now in Kashmir, they're also, they've always been thinking about the other side, the Azad Kashmir, which I think was liberated uh, for Kashmiris. And, uh, but that's not how it's narrativized. That's liberated Kashmir. That's why it is Azad Kashmir. Uh, the name uh, kind of tells you about the history. And Kashmir is such a region where vocabulary, the way you're using names, the way you're de deploying names, it becomes very important because you're also kind of tracing the history. So India also claims that. And under whose behest? Like, should we be, should we be kind of going back and looking at the nitty-gritty of the technicalities that the colonial government had left behind, or should we be thinking of what is happening now, making uh, decisions that are environmentally sane, that uh, fit the people in the region, and that are also futurist, because we are talking, we're not really, we are looking too much into a past that we should not be considering, because it hasn't really served the region. Uh, even thinking about the very benign, like, you know, we, when we think about post-colonialism, we think about Edward Said, we think about, or, you know, Orientalism, and we think about all the wonderful things that it revealed. But just think about how much it has invisibilized for us people, for Palestinians, for Kashmiris. So how do we rethink this moment? 
So I, while I respect that we should read, we should read history, our own histories, the history of the underdogs, which is not there. You know, no one really has narrativized Kashmir uh, or the history of Azad Kashmir the way it should be. Even in Kashmir, many people, the violence of language is so imposed because the government that you're living under, the occupation that you're living under, for for a lo long time, you know, Kashmiris kind of only saw the Kabyle raid. That's how that's how they saw. It. They call it a, they called it a Kabyle raid, completely unseeing the violence that Indian Army had caused during that very time on their populations completely unse unseeing because the narrative for the next 40 years became that this was a raid and that was uh, saving of the people. So I, I think while we have to go back to thinking about the Independence Act and thinking about what kind of resolutions were left by Lord Mountbatten and all of those people, I also think that this is a moment that we can actually divest of all of that baggage and really think in decolonial terms about the future of these regions. And, I, and by that, I don't mean to say that we have to completely uh, forego United Nations and all of that. Those are elements that we really need to keep in mind because the world understands through that lens. While we are doing that, we also have to do a lot of decolonization of our own mindset and decolonization of the knowledges that we're using. Um, thanks, Satya. The second question um, is from Satak Tomer, uh, who asks a, a, a practical question, actually, what actions and activities uh, can Indians do that would more positively contribute to the Kashmir struggle against Indian neocolonialism? So I think, you know, in India, I would say per se, there is a lot of sanctioned ignorance, and that's not my term. It's Gayatri Spivak's term, and, you know, you keep borrowing from uh, post-colonial scholars, or even if they don't call themselves post-colonial scholars or subaltern scholars anymore. But I think there is, for the longest possible time, there has been this sanctioned ignorance around Kashmir, in India especially. And when I say sanctioned ignorance, what it means is that there are certain forms of knowledges that are considered to be uh, bona fide, that are considered to be good and benign, and other people's histories are completely erased. And those are, for example, this, this very example, like why is there so much resistance in Kashmir? Why do Kashmiris not see themselves as quote unquote Indians? Why do even the client politicians who have done such disservice to Kashmir that they have brought it to the brink of annihilation in this moment, they even did not see themselves as full-fledged Indians. They saw themselves as adhering to Indian constitutions uh, but they didn't see themselves as Indians. That's why they actually uh, created uh, what was also known to other people as subnationalism. But I don't really see that as subnationalism as much I, as I see it as an identity. Um, and again, nationalism is completely a different thing altogether, and that's a separate discussion. So in this moment, what can Indians do? They can really come out of this sanctioned ignorance, which is also uh, sinking their country. And that sanctioned ignorance is that India is Kashmir is not uh, an integral part of India. Kashmir is a separate part where Kashmiris, from the very get go, have seen plebiscite as a way out. But plebiscite is again very limiting. They have seen the right to self determination as a way out, which is more and more. Uh, it's it's a it's a bigger uh, it has a bigger audience, I would say. 
and also connecting to Kashmiri history. For the last 74 years, India really has been able to tell the rest of the world that they are imposing democracy in Kashmir. How do you impose democracy on, on people who are not adhering to your constitution, who are clearly saying that they are separate? How is it that imp, uh, the impositions uh, from 1947 onwards, everything that has happened to Kashmiris has been dilution and criminalization of their resistance? And that has happened because it's been easy for uh, Indian masses, I would say, to buy the fact that India is a country where there is unity in diversity. And they have also bought into this idea of nationalism that we are one from, as they say, Kashmir to Kanyakumari, but that's not really true. And it's, an, it's a malaise of nationalism and that has to be countered. And that doesn't mean that you love what is now your country less, but that also means that you respect other people's identities and ethnicities and Kashmiris have for for even if you think geographically these have been really distinct people and they have a distinct pride if you have a distinct pride these people also have a distinct pride why is it that the Malayas of nationalism has to get so has to supersede everything and that happens because Kashmir's history has been invisibilized completely Kashmiris are seen as criminals right from 1947, even their earliest client politician, who actually created a bridge between India and Kashmir, which became the special status. He was criminalized within several months of signing the document of the, 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 the Article 370, he was part of that. And once that was done, it was done and dusted, you know, they were treated as, sorry to use a very impolite analogy, they were used as a toilet, they were used as just like you use toilet paper. And he was thrown into jail and political wilderness for the next 25 years. He was used because he had actually helped India come into Kashmir through its own legal statutes. And that was the Article 370. It was a Trojan horse for Kashmiris. It basically it basically held all those laws, especially uh, the Fundamental Rights Charter of Indian Constitution, which also can, uh, which also can put people under administrative detention if India's sovereignty is threatened. So once that came in, slowly and steadily, Kashmir's own struggle became criminalized. Today, you can easily call Kashmiris as terrorists without understanding that most Kashmiris adhere to that line of thought. Today, Kashmiri people cannot even speak about if they write even a small Facebook post, they get arrested. If they write an article, uh, they are thrown out of their, there's a, there was a PhD student very recently, he'd written an article in 2010, which suddenly it was deemed as threatening India's sovereignty and he's in jail currently. Human rights defenders, everyone else, how is it possible that a democracy can accept people being incarcerated and killed in such a manner? Isn't that a question to ask? Isn't there some kind of uh, some kind of lacunae that is present in the minds of Indian masses? Some kind of invisibilization that has happened. It's very easy to buy that Kashmiris are violent. Kashmiris are very uh, they're terrorists because they're also Muslims. Because you know you conflate those two and it becomes very easy. How is it that it's so easy to buy it? And I think one of the greatest services that people who think inside India and are still willing to understand, I think they should contend with what Kashmiris have written in the last 74 years, not just what your own analysts have told you, but Kashmiris have written, it's not only in the last 20 years, 
ever since uh, the West kind of became uh, familiar with critical Kashmir studies because many Kashmiri scholars got together and activists got together and they wanted to carve a niche for it because Kashmir was not seen as a region. In, in It was seen as a region, but again, unhighlighted by uh, bigger nationalisms. So, but Kashmiris have written for the last 74 years. They've actually looked at their situation, but most of them have not been able to be translated to the other parts of the world. And also many of them were criminalized. They were completely repressed. And <clears throat> that's where uh, you can create solidarity, which is to understand Kashmir through the vantage of Kashmiris, not through the vantage of what other analysts tell you. There are Kashmiris used to for the longest possible time and even today feel like, uh, again, for lack of a better analogy as guinea pigs, because people come to them and they say like, what do you want? What do Kashmiris want? And it's a it's an affront to people who have been hundred thousand uh, people and many official documents, many human rights uh, documents, uh, kind of put it around seventy thousand to uh, hundred thousand people have been killed, both combatants and non-combatants. How is it that combatants in Kashmir today can be killed and labeled as terrorists? And these are fifteen-year-old, ill-trained boys who don't have arms and ammunition. Uh, how is it that you can? India can have this many, this level of war crimes inside Kashmir and Indians be silent because they have bought the fact that Kashmiris are doing something fundamentally that's affecting their sovereignty. But that's a complete lie. The fact is that Kashmir's sovereignty has been attacked. In 2019, what Indians took was Kashmir's sovereignty. And that's that that was the re-annexation of Kashmir. It wasn't it wasn't the annexation for first time because the first annexation happens in 1947. For lack of a better milestone, it happened even before. Uh, but 2019 was it it was it kind of like came a came full circle. You know Nehru, whom we kind of think of, a lot of people still think of him as a very benign, a socialist, whatever he might have been in his time and whatever his uh, good things or bad things. But he called. Israel a fact in 1957, in the 1950s itself. And he called uh, for the abrogation of Kashmir's autonomy, having signed it with the rest of the people in 1950s itself. So isn't it important for Indians who are thinking about this and who are also looking at their own country as, as really sinking? Uh, and it's it's almost like the imperial heart of India is at is really brazenly evident now. Uh, there is nothing to hide it. So isn't it a moment for those people who still want to understand Kashmir to look at Kashmir's history? Like what are Kashmiris thinking? What are Kashmiris asking? What, rather than what the government is telling them. And in 2019, the Indian government said that we are actually uh, developing Kashmir. Uh, we are rooting out terrorism and nepotism. And we are also, they also made it seem that Kashmir's autonomy was had created a virulent system where it was not only <clears throat> repressing Kashmiris and taking away democratic rights from them, but it was also discriminating against women. And it was very easy to buy, because it's, it's very easy to buy that the, this is a Muslim-dominated region. So women can be oppressed, you know, women must be oppressed because this must be a very sad patriarchy. People still ask me, like, where is my burqa? People still ask me, how is it that I speak good English? And that's not just, my, that's a lot of post-colonial Malays around it, but it's also a very specific kind of Malays for Kashmiris because we are seen a, as a certain way. And uh, so I would say, long story short, I would say that 
the best is to read Kashmiri writers and see what they're writing for what it is. And the other thing that I will say is that in this moment, a lot of Kashmiri writers in Kashmir have stopped writing because no one can write in Kashmir at this moment. Anyone who is writing something is seen as secession. It's not seen as dissent. That is the what's the juice of joint democracy, but it's seen as everything is seen as attacking India's sovereignty and throwing people into the jail. So at this moment, when we are thinking about the future of Kashmir, you see a lot of Kashmiri voices ebbing, but there is still a lot that you can read, that you can contend with and, uh, and ask questions about which will show you that Kashmir is a Kashmiri movement is a resistance. It's not um, terrorism, so to speak. And that's where Indians kind of also uh, divest from Kashmiri <clears throat> resistance, thinking that it's attacking their geo body without uh, paying attention to the fact that it is the, their nation state that is killing them and highlighting them and highlighting their identity and uh, you know maligning and undermining their resistance. So it's, they're not thinking the other way around. They're thinking of themselves as victims. So I think that mentality needs to change. Uh, I'll tell you, there, there's a kind of follow-on. I'm being a, just conscious of time, so there's quite a few questions. Um, you were saying about people reading Kashmiri authors, and so one of the questions is, who would you recommend? Uh, which authors would you recommend, in apart from yourself, of course, um, in terms of providing a kind of blueprint? Uh, I would say I would say there's there's a lot of Kashmiri fiction that has uh, there's fiction that has been published, uh, which is a good way to get into Kashmiri uh, writing. Uh, I would say Mirza Wahid, Basharat Peer, Farah Bashir. Uh, Farah Bashir's is not a non it's a nonfiction memoiristic piece, and then there is Gohar Gilani. There are many other uh, authors who have written um fiction and non-fiction and there is academic work that has been produced on Kashmir you can just google critical Kashmir studies you can google resisting occupation there is this one volume uh where you have a lot of Kashmiri scholars who got together and there's this it's a it's kind of a it's a re, it's a reader in itself like it, you can kind of look at the basic 101 situation that is in Kashmir so um, I can provide a list to the organizers and they can move it forward. So that, that's not a problem. And you can also look at the website of uh, Stand with Kashmir. They have a voluminous uh, in-progress syllabus uh, where they have uh, put a lot of um, effort into. There is, there's a lot of writers in there and not just Kashmiris, but also non-Kashmiris who have written regarding Kashmir. Then there is another website, which is Kashmiri Scholars, uh, Kashmiri Scholars Advocacy Net uh, Network. They also have a lot of documents on their website. I'm connected to most of uh, the, the things that I'm talking about here. Um, so they have uh, a lot of documents on their website as well that you can read and that take you to different um different kind of collections or art authors, artists, uh, and they also have some 101 documents on their website that, that help you understand Kashmir, Kashmiri situation from the Kashmiri vantage. And that's also a group of Kashmiri and non-Kashmiri scholars who work on Kashmir. So I would suggest I can, uh, after the talk, I can send the list to the organizers and they can send it to you and to others who are interested. Right. Thanks. And sort of switching from the more practical, um, Maria Mushtaq, who may be someone I know, uh, is asking a question, can you elaborate on post-colonialism forgetting Kashmiris and Palestinians? <clears throat> I think 
the answer is very, uh, I, I'll make it short in the interest of time. Uh, when we think of post-colonialism, it's almost like <clears throat> in the last seven, in the last 50 years, the way it's kind of like grown, it's uh, also the subaltern school uh, of thought where you kind of like can the subaltern speak and you think about <clears throat> imperialism versus brown bodies. You think about the imposition of Western Eurocentric biased perspective on peoples in the non-West, quote unquote, also the Orient or the East. So that's that's kind of largely how we see the school of post-colonialism and also thinking about the subaltern study and how uh, how it kind of came to fruition, especially in the South Asian context. So my only, uh, I, I think the question is here, and I just want to quickly look at it so that I'm not, um, where, where did the question go? I, oh, can so post, forgetting Kashmiris and Palestinians. So my question is really simple. It's like, in all of this post-colonial literature, have you ever seen the mention of Kashmir? as Kashmir emerges right now in, in, in the psyche of people and after the re-internationalization of 2019. Have we ever seen anyone talk about Kashmir in the manner um, Kashmiris wanted to be spoken of? If post-colonialism hasn't done that, isn't that a disservice? It has hidden more about the post-colonial nations, especially when we think about India. It has hidden so much about India. Kashmir is not the only problem with India. And again, for the lack of a better term, the Northeastern states, uh, long before AFSPA, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, was imposed in Kashmir in 1991, it was already imposed in the Northeastern states, especially Assam. So, and also thinking about what's happening in the areas like Bastar and the indigenous people inside Kashmir and who is imposing on them, uh, in, indigenous people inside India, sorry. So you kind of think about like what kind of, world did the post-colonial scholars live in when they are thinking about uh, also thinking about the subaltern i kind of think that if kashmir was not presented in the manner by the post-colonial scholars as kashmir exists now i don't think post-colonialism serves us and that's kind of the invisibilization and that happens to palestinian issue as well it's not seen in the same manner and Many scholars in this moment, especially people who subscribe to the post-colonial school of thought, they're thinking about, <clears throat> is Kashmir an internal occupation issue? And again, that's an affront to Kashmiri history. How can post-colonial scholars think about post-colonialism and then Kashmir as an internal occupation issue? Isn't that really, in, isn't that kind of like even erasing what post-colonialism post thinks about in its basic premise? And then <clears throat> thinking about democracy, the Westphalian Eurocentric democracy that comes to our cultures and tries to tame the cultures. And I'm not saying democracy is bad in a sense, but then also thinking about the kind of violences it has created on people, um, people like us, cultures and ethnicities, and the way it's really tried to carve borders. And then, you know, even thinking about uh, when we think about partition of India, the, the language, when we say partition of India, the partition means that you are partitioning something that is a continuous legacy of some kind of antiquity, or, but that's not true. You're actually creating two separate countries from an entity that was put together by the British colonials. So all of those, I, I think these are invisibilization. So rather than 
like partition is creation creation serves me better because when we say creation of two countries it really helps me see Kashmir as well but I, I don't think those questions have been head-on asked or even asked in post-colonial theory in that sense it's been so much of thinking about imperialism on brown bodies and um, and in that there are some predominant brown bodies for 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 lack of a you know again not it might look like a generalization but upper class brown bodies in that sense the Indian brown bodies for that sense and Kashmiris don't exist in that equation at all and we don't see them mentioned we don't see Kashmir uh, Kashmiris having from the word get go criminalized from 1915 itself Kashmiris have been criminalized and. It's only the epitome of that criminalization that we see now, because now the world buys the word terrorist very easily, and then you become one if you're a Muslim too. So I, I think those are the questions we need to ask, and <clears throat> that's the kind of invisibilization that has happened. Um, there's another question. Uh, what do you consider to be the ushering of neocolonialism neo in Kashmir, the August 5th, uh, 2019? which for our, um, for our non-South Asian audience is the point at which the Indian state uh, abrogated on uh, the constitutional status that, was, that uh, Kashmir had, had since uh, 1947. So, so that, that's the first part of the question is about the ushering of neocolonialism. And the second part of the question, which is quite a different question, but I'll, I'll, I'll pose it just because I think it's one person. <laughs> For an indigenous researcher studying in Indian occupation of Kashmir, how does one move beyond the post-colonial methodology? They're two separate questions, actually. So I don't know, maybe, should I read the first one out again? It's about the- No, I, I, I got it. I, I actually tried to access the, it said, what do you consider to be ushering of neo-colonialism in Kashmir? Uh, I think, what do you consider to be ushering of neo-colonialism in Kashmir? I think everything, right from the, get go it's uh you know when we think about post-colonial study uh, post-colonial uh societies or post-colonial countries so to speak i feel like if we go even we go to their inception as they kind of come into uh formation like india comes into formation uh, and i'll kind of think about india and vis-a-vis -vis kashmir uh that's also like it's also creating a lot of violence on other people which it wants to get into its borders so I, I think that moment is very important for us to consider like uh it, it's not a very comfortable situation it takes <clears throat> it takes India 70 years to <clears throat> to abrogate or de-operationalize Kashmir's autonomy almost 70 years and it's a long time it should make us think that from its very inception when the client politicians signed the autonomy agreement and they kind of were keeping pulbicide on the table as well and they were saying that we are going to be this entity till we kind of find a resolution i think that's also part and parcel of how this neo-colonialism works which is why i had earlier said that india has its own brand of neo-colonialism so the way westphalian eurocentric democracies come to these post-colonial states they kind of give them the infrastructure and then they take off on their own and in this moment what you see is the flowering of ethno-nationalism the flowering of hindu supremacy that is 
at its epitome in, in this moment, you kind of see neo-colonialism, neoliberalism, and that kind of mesh together and kind of coalesce to form this new entity that we are facing. On one hand, there is this question of development in Kashmir um, that in 2019 was used as one of the, the crowbars to pry into Kashmir, that we're going to develop Kashmir. You know, Kashmir isn't developed, which was really a misnomer, which was really a straw man argument where used around Kashmir that it has to be developed and women are discriminated against and we have to set that right and we have to take away uh, Kashmir, Kashmir's autonomy. You see that as a new neo-colonial moment. So I don't see 2019 as any break from the larger policy that India has had for Kashmir, because the policy starts with Nehru himself. Nehru actually saw this autonomy being diluted and going away with time. So he was never, uh, he and his ilk, they were never very genuine about giving Kashmir autonomy. They always saw it something that is going to go away at some point. But I think in what Nehru probably saw was Kashmiri's kind of like, you know, gelling with India and integrating with India for, but but Kashmiris never did that. And I feel like a post-colon, um, someone who was, uh, you know, so pivotal to India's own independence and thinking about their own ethnicity and thinking about their own identity, how could they be so blind to other people? And I think that's something um, that that's something that when we think about Indian neo-colonialism. Uh, there is it, it is a different animal altogether. But for Kashmiris, it has been very brazen. If you look from the Kashmiri vantage from 1947 itself, it has been neo-colonialism. And let me give you one little example. Uh, how colonialism neo, in its neo-colonial fashion, the way we see it uh, emerge in so many places, especially Kashmir, you see it, uh, you see what India has also used. Uh, democracy as like weaponization of democracy, weaponization of electoral politics, telling people that, you know, you are the fate of your, you are the uh, master of your own fate. But in true, in, in, in reality, they're not because they're, they're imposing a system on them and then trying to make it down the line, uh, make it uh, palatable to people. Uh, at one point there were, there was this question asked, like if you're, and it's still asked, like if you're taking uh, part in, in, in Indian elections, how are you subscribing to the politics of Azadi? Aren't they two different things? Uh, and there was there was this idea propagated that uh, Kashmiris don't know what they want. They're such a fragmented society. Uh, some want Pakistan, some want India, and some are uh, want, wanting independence. And then the other idea that was floated, uh, that is still being floated, that different et ethnicities, you know, Kashmiris are, there are Kashmiris, then there are Pahadis, and then you have the Azad Kashmiris, and, you know, they don't, this region is so disparate, and there are uh, Buddhists, and then there are Hindus, and then there are Pandits, uh, indigenous Kashmir, in, indigenous uh, Brahmins who are called the Pandits, and then, of course, now they kind of like go under the rubric of Hindus, uh, which they did not before. They they saw themselves as a distinct ethnic, through a distinct ethnic identity. So that is kind of like propagated as a fragmentation of this place. But I think the question that we need to ask also is how is it that India sees itself as a unity in diversity, but when it comes to Kashmiris, why is their diversity at, seen as fragmentation? So these are questions of narratives. So you see India's neocolonialism, the way it's kind of like propagating base, based on a democratic, Eurocentric democratic system that is also imposed on its geobody. And you see the discomfort that it has with it as we see it unfolding in India. 
But then in uh, Kashmir, it unfolds in a very, uh, in a more sinister manner. Because on one hand, they make Kashmiris, if you're not taking part in voting, you're not a Democrat. And it's not a good thing if you're not a democratic person, if you don't subscribe to democracy. I see that as a sinister way of taming people through a Westphalian uh, superstructure that has been imposed on them. But on the other side, India also weaponizes it. It says once Kashmiris take part in electoral electoral system, that's a blanket endorsement of Indian uh, rule over them. But that's not true. Kashmiris see the politics of Azadi as separate, but they do over the years. They also want to live. They want to have some form of governance. They want to have the shelter, food, water kind of a thing. But then also Indian neocolonialism, it's also been very extractive. It's not only in 2019 that they took away the territorial sovereignty and now they're coming in and now settler colonialism is going to happen exactly as it's happening uh, in Palestine or as it has happened in Palestine uh, in the last 72 years. In Kashmir, it has also happened, but it's just happened under the garb of democracy or a democratic system. Think about uh, Kashmir's water resources. Uh, Kashmiris, there were Kashmiri civil uh, civil society leaders who are fighting to get back their nas- national water resources uh, the, under, the, that are under hydroelectric and thermal uh, dams, uh, the, all these hydroelectric projects that have been created inside Kashmir over Kashmiri uh, water bodies. And that take most of the electricity to, to India. So what had happened in the um, 2000s, there was these big uh, uh, big movements that were created by Kashmiris to get back those water resources, uh, to, to not have India nationalize, so to speak, those water resources and they be under Kashmiri control. And Kashmiris were saying that it's a new East India company. So there were various narratives going on in the last 72 years within the Kashmiri society in different manners, some fighting for resources, some fighting for, uh, you know, for more political rights and some fighting for self-determination. So it's, it's a confluence that you have to see as part of the same problem, which is the problem of right to exist and right to self-determination. It's not just one thing. So that's how neocolonialism has, Indian neocolonialism has also kind of weaponized uh, democracy to invisibilize Kashmiri situation. I feel like that's one of the foremost lenses that we should be using to understand Indian neocolonialism. Uh, I I don't know what the second part was, I forget. It was about, um, for an indigenous researcher studying Indian occupation of Kashmir, how does one move beyond the post-colonial methodology? And actually that ties in with a question that we have, uh, the last question, I think this is by, um, Mariam Davis, where she says, I'm curious to hear about the silencing of Kashmir by post-colonial studies and how this plays out or possibly rectified in decolonial approaches, as well as Mm -hmm. current discourses around the indigenous. So I suppose they're both, they're kind of similar questions in some way. What's your kind of methodology? I I think in this moment, whenever I I talk to students or uh, people who I mentor in different uh, ways, degrees, by conversations, or being formally uh, connected to their projects, I feel like rather than, ju- I mean, of course, we need to look at post-colonialism and the school of thought and subaltern school of thought and kind of see and deconstruct uh, whatever uh, for its merits and demerits. But I also think that in this moment, I encourage myself and my students 
and anyone who is uh, really interested in understanding how is it that we move forward, we do have to uh, contend and we have to start understanding decolonial literature. We have to engage with decolonial literature and not just decolonial literature that is uh, we we don't have a lot around Kashmir at this moment, which is decolonial. Of course, critical Kashmir studies, the premise is decolonial, and the, we are kind of learning from other indigenous scholars and other indigenous scholarship that has been produced. So I think in this moment, that is what needs to be happening. But to to you know to how do you make a line a smaller line? You draw a bigger line, and I think decolonization of knowledge is, is the bigger line where you can begin from. That's how you want to move past. Because I see a lot of people still taken up by thinking about post-colonial. I feel like what is post-colonial for Kashmir? There is no post-colonial for Kashmir. It's all post-neocolonialism. Sorry, it's all neocolonialism. There is no post to the conflict. There is no post-conflict in our societies, in our cultures. So that's something that we need to understand that this is the moment not just to understand what's being missed by post-colonialism and how it has invisibilized our situations, but what does decolonization do for us and how do we do decolonization? I think that's very important for us to understand. And we don't have to do decolonization like other decolon indigenous people are doing. That's where we also have to start thinking about boundaries, thinking about not collating and uh, thinking that my struggle is just like other people's struggles, therefore what they are saying against their uh, hegemons is what I can do against my hegemons. I think we are dealing with different beasts, but really created by this post-colonial uh, Westphalian Eurocentric democracy that we have taken into our societies, and now we are grappling with it. And I think uh, we also have to think about, I think you should engage with the settler democracy in U U.S., and how it has been so um, so successful in talking about itself as the leading democracy while invisibilizing an entire genocide that we sit upon as the as we join the layers of colonists who um, settlers who have come in. So I think decolonization is the only way. Decolonizing knowledges, and I would say for Kashmir. Go back to your writers, you know, they might have written in Kashmiri, they might have written in Urdu, uh, but they have written and they have written in English as well. And I know that it's the pain of post-colonial societies, again, for lack of a better word, um, that we have to learn English so that we can talk to the rest of the world, because that's how uh, ideas get across. But think about Gugiwati Yango. Uh, think about uh, decolonizing the mind. I think uh, that is somewhere, maybe a place to begin with. And also think about how he resurrects his own language in different forms and different manners and how he also carries English with him. So uh, maybe I just dropped the name for some, but he is a he's a preeminent uh, sort of like the father of decolonizing the mind. That's a book that he's also written and the historian of African literature. So I think that's that's where I began my decolonizing the mind journey. And that's probably where if you are looking towards it, that might be a place to begin with. And then there are many other uh, decolonial scholars who you probably, again, I, I can send the list to the organizers, but you have to look towards decolonial literature, decolonizing your mindset and trying to understand your own scholars who have written for the last 70 years. And I say 70 years because post 1947, all of these issues emerge and also become very vague and become removed from their history. Kashmir is so removed from its history in this moment that 
even my generation had to go back and read history on our own so that we know why we are in the problem that we are. Otherwise, everyone was telling us uh, in the early 90s that Kashmir was so peaceful. What happened? It used to be in the Bollywood movies. And why? What happened to Kashmiris? Why? And then the problem was like, you know, it had been diluted so much that the absence of direct military aggression on the roads was seen as peace. So it was absence of that. And, and here's the thing. When we think about the direct military aggression, the absence of it on roads, it was not really true. It was always there with the encampments and the bases and the military bases and the military camps that had been set across Kashmir. If you take all of them together, they're the size of Dallas, Texas. That's the that's the level of um, the, the Indian uh, military. Uh, the, 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 the length of the breadth of Kashmir that they are occupying at this moment is the size of Dallas. So that was always a, that was always true for Kashmiris. And people were still saying that there is peace. There was films being uh, picturized inside Kashmir. There was a lot of fetishization of Kashmiris and which we also saw happening in 2019. So it had always, it had always been happening. And I think uh, the moment for us is to understand all of that and kind of like not just think about what disservice post-colonialism has done. Of course, you know, if you want to take that up as your topic and want to look into it, you're welcome. But I, I think just to move beyond, you also have to think about decolonization. You have to think about decolonialism, de decolonizing 101 and how to incorporate that into your project and into how, how you're thinking. And for that, you will have to go back to people who have written about Kashmir, uh, who are Kashmiris. Uh, and across communities, whatever they have written, pay attention to it, whatever they're writing, pay attention to it. And then look up uh, other indigenous scholars and decolonial scholars and see how they are framing questions and how they are asking um, questions of the settlers. And I think there's some learning to be done there as well. So I think that's the only way rather than just um, picking holes in post-colonialism, let's construct something uh, because I think uh, the world is really ready to hear. I might be um, too much of a po positive person here, but I but I think, I, I, I feel that. I feel like we are at a threshold where people are ready to listen to other uh, alternate ideas because it's not just us as indigenous communities, as Kashmiris, as Palesti Palestinians who are under threat. I think the entire world is uh, dealing with some of the problems that we have in different manners, it's only a matter of thinking through them to see how we are actually being eaten alive by the Westphalian Eurocentric democracy, and that we subscribe to so easily. Um, I I'm conscious of time, and so I'm just thinking: Do you want to take a few more, or should we? There's, there's one. I mean, the question uh, is from Naim Malik, and it's kind of a practical question. So if we take that and then. Think about where we're going in terms of time. We've been going for about an hour. Yeah, just I mean, it's up to you. So uh, let me do this question: Is that we know what we are asking for in Palestine as a demand of the BDS movement, i.e., equal rights, dismantling of apartheid Israel, and right return for the Palestinians? What's the kind of uh, demands for people like yourself, for ourselves, or people who want to, who are sitting outside of uh, South Asia? What kind mm -hmm. of solidarity demands? Uh, do you think are appropriate or 
are there any kind of campaigns, I suppose, is what I'm also like, which like civil society campaigns like BDS that are, are in place for people who are listening that might want to know how to practically get involved. So I suppose there's two things. What do you see as the roadmap and what's the organizational side to that? So I think uh, Kashmiris have had to, in the last 74 years, they've had to contend with layers of invisibilization and they have had to really uh, for you know, for Palestine, sometimes it's also like uh, it's also very kind of direct kind of a fight, even though they are fighting so many perceptions and biases and so much invisibilization in different forms. But Kashmiris have had to fight democracy itself, the politics of democracy to tell the rest of the world, hey, you know, we are genuine. We are a genuine problem. We are not terrorism. We are not uh, disgruntled. We are not disenchanted. It's not as if we are disenchanted and we have distrust of uh, India. It's actually we have a problem. So how does the world give Kashmir solidarity in this moment? And I feel like, um, and what do Kashmiris want? I feel Kashmiris want the right to self-determination. And it's not just the pillibicide, the, the theory of pillibicide, you either join one country or the other. I, I think that the, the area needs to be demilitarized. It's so heavily demilitarized at the moment that it's one of the highest militarized zones in the world. There is one soldier for every eight Kashmiris. It varies in some places, one soldier for every 17, because there are no clear cut um, statistics regarding how many soldiers are inside Kashmir, but it's more than 700,000 and it's kind of growing day by day. And they're also taking over more and more land. So I think demilitarization of the uh, region really is something that we can all uh, put our weight behind and uh, decolonization of the region and also thinking about how to resurrect the right for self-determination of Kashmiris and what that would look like asking Kashmiris themselves. And, and again, I'm saying we don't have to go back to 19th century and 20th century resolutions for a 21st century problem. And it is a 21st century problem right now. And Kashmir also is, is a very generative place to think about ethnicities and identities and how people like Kashmiri is a certain identity, but then there are other identities in there. And that India uses, as I said earlier, it says that there is a lot of diversity, there's a lot of fragmentation, but that's not really fragmentation. Uh, India got to the point where it is now to its unity diversity kind of a situation. It was in negotiation with different parts of what is now India before 1947, just to think like what the country would look like. They took more than 10 years to think that. How is it that they're asking Kashmiris this question and they should have this while they're under siege? So I think the area needs a breather. The, we really, uh, as international community, people need to say that this area needs to be demilitarized. It needs to be decolonized. It needs a rest for some time so that people can breathe and live and have political freedoms uh, whatever that is going to look like. And it's a very creative situation. I don't think uh, you have, I, I don't think we can subscribe to 19th or 20th century solutions to a 21st century problem where uh, people are actually, you know, we are also so much uh, connected to other indigenous struggles, not by geolocations, but because we see them as similar. Just thinking about the Palestinian uh, situation, how Kashmiris see themselves as, uh, in in uh, what I call as affective solidarity, like there is there is no exchange as such, but there is so much affect in between these two struggles that people actually in Friday congregations that used to be the norm to pray for Palestine, and uh, wherever you saw free Kashmir, you saw 
free Palestine, free save Gaza. And it's very unique to Kashmir that uh, when something happens uh, in uh, Palestine, that there is a protest in Kashmir, that people will come onto the streets. In 2014, there was a young boy who was um, killed by the Indian forces because of a protest that was being done for Palestine. So what I kind of think is, that there, are, there is a simultaneous kind of situation happening between these indigenous uh, uh, peoples all across the world and preeminent might be in those in this conversation, I'm saying Palestine and Kashmiris. And I think those solidarities need to be kept in mind. And we have to think creatively. We don't really, uh, when we think about predominantly when we think about United Nations, pre predominantly when we think about uh, West trying to solve these problems, we also have to think about West having created the, these problems, especially when we think about the United Kingdom and also thinking about the role what um, you, uh, what the US is playing in this moment. So I, I think I veered a little too far from the question, but I think that's that's where I am. Did I answer it? No, I think that was, yeah, I think it was just, it's just quite important to think about how we can do solidarity work when we're sitting outside uh, of, of, of the context. I mean, this and the Palestinian, the international profile of Palestine uh, is, is, is very high and has been much higher than the international pro profile of Kashmir because, as you said, of the Kashmiri, um, of, of the Indian state. Um, and so I think there was, I think that was the main thrust of the question was about how we can do, you know, what is the kind of Kashmiri civil society? Oh um, yeah, that is an, there's an important point that I want to add that in this moment, the level of criminalization of Kashmiri resistance has reached to a point where no one can speak for Kashmir. Inside Kashmir, people are taking great risks to write, to read, to uh, research, to come out. But there is so much happening as, as we are sitting here. After 2019, so many laws have been changed inside Kashmir without any kind of um, negotiation with Kashmiris. It's all been unilateral. It's all been... Uh, the, the the Indian rule and their nominated government, which is not elected or anything. It's so it, they're directly ruling it from New Delhi and they're changing laws every day. As a result, uh, one of the preeminent human rights defenders who's recognized, who works for the United Nations, uh, you have Kuram Parvez, he's under arrest. He's been incarcerated since November last. You have journalists. You have a journalist who runs a very... Um, it's a very famous and reputed uh, website called Kashmir Wala, and it's also in print. He's also under arrest. There uh, are Asif Sultan. He has been under arrest since 2016. You have so many journalists who have actually done their due, which as journalists they do, they just report on things. They have been um, they have been put into jails because they have aided and abetted, abetted uh, either uh, some sort of a secessionism or they are labeled outrightly as terrorists. That's what, what's happening. And again, as when we think about Kuram Parvez, the kind of work he was doing is also seen as a threat to India's sovereignty, which is just, you know, documenting human rights and also historically speaking of why, because human rights, when we think about human rights, it's not, and that's the other thing, you know, when we think about solidarity, like what kind of solidarity do Kashmiris need? There are a lot of people who give solidarity for ameliorating human, human rights issues. They're like, oh, yeah, definitely there should be no human rights violations. 
But human rights violations don't occur in a vacuum. They occur because Kashmiris are asking for something. So human rights violations are occurring because India doesn't want Kashmiris to be in resistance against uh, their rule. They don't want Kashmiris uh, to have a uh, right to self-determination. So when Kashmiris are asking their right to self-determination, they get violated, their human rights get violated. Uh, and since 1991, we have seen an outright disrespect of uh, life and property and privacy inside Kashmir. None of them exist. So I think, uh, that's something that we also need to consider that Kashmiris don't need solidarity only to ameliorate human rights violations. They need to ameliorate what is causing those human rights violations. And that is the political solution to the problem. And I think, uh, so So that's, that's kind of like, you know, we have to look at the overlaps in solidarity that indigenous people can give each other. And I think in from 2019 onwards, and even after 1947, you have this really extractive neo-colonial uh, rule and occupation and military occupation that's imposed on Kashmir, that's taking its resources away. And that's leaving this, this uh, region as a, as a soup bowl, which is inundated the moment there are floods because the kind of, uh, the kind of burden on this little geo body, which is so much, there's, there's so much military in the region. There are so, so many military inst installations in the region. It's a very, it's not that big of a place to hold its own 8 million people plus the military and plus um, whatever other allied uh, formations it has. So it's becoming an ecological disaster as well. And I think, and the other bigger bigger point is that it's a nuclear flashpoint. So there are so many uh, over, uh, overlaps that the world community can see where it doesn't only serve the Kashmiris, but where, where it's serving the world community and the community in South Asia. So, and also I, I would say, I would really urge people not to buy the, the rubric of Islamic terrorism, which is such a misnomer and such a stereotypical entity. And it's easily imposed on Kashmiris. And that's why Kashmiris many times subscribe to United Nations tell, because they say, oh, you know, we are recognized by United Nations, not because they think United Nations is the end all and be all. They think it's very, it's a shorthand for the world to understand that we are a genuine resistance and we are not terrorism, so to speak. So I think those are the overlaps uh, where we can kind of meet as these different struggles. But at the same time, we don't really have to subscribe to 19th and 20th century solutions for 21st century problems, even if they are historical, because the world has changed, people have changed, and uh, we can be more creative in combating the scourge of what is post-colonialism. Um, I think, Atter, if you're okay, we can end there. Uh, there is, I think you actually answered another question, which is about the idea of eliminating the idea of terrorism in terms of the way in which we think and see Kashmir. I actually just answered that just now. Um, and I'm just conscious of the time. So I'd like to thank you for this talk. Uh, I think it's been a wonderful kind of contribution to this series of talks in which we're looking at this relationship between uh, India and Israel and the ways and the different ways in which uh, the, the these two actual uh, entities that profess democracy, as you were saying, but are engaged in real violent acts against uh, people within uh, within these territories. So, yeah, thank you. I, I, I do want to say this because uh, may, maybe uh, the we needed more direct connection. I do want to say the connection between India and Israel 
a lot of people think that it's a very recent thing that they're warming up, but I would also urge them to look into the history of how Nehru kind or or even how Gandhi saw this. So I, I think that is something there because Nehru in 1950s said that Israel is a fact and they allowed uh, a consulate in Mumbai in 1950s. And in 1990 is when the first embassy opens and then that becomes the consulate general in Mumbai. So you, and currently, we do pay a lot of attention to the trade uh, to the trade happening between the two countries, especially the agribusiness, and also uh, thinking about arms and ammunition. But I think we also have to pay attention to what else is happening regarding cultural trade, films, and um, little businesses, and tourism. And I think that is far more uh, problematic than having a brazen arms trade happening between the two, which is so. So that's something that is happening in the moment. So I feel like uh, that's that's kind of the new level and layer that's being added. So that's that's what I would say regarding that. And Kashmiris have seen the, the Israeli settler colonial uh, states incursions into Kashmir in the 80s and even before. So there's, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and I'm hoping that someone actually brings that together and uh, writes about it in a more formal manner so that we have something to go back to because these things can get very diluted and then completely forgotten. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. And I also wanted to bring your attention to uh, what Modi said in 2017 when he was visiting and their mic was left open and where he said that, oh, I have to take care of interests of India. I need more water, uh, clean water. Where will I get it? Ramallah? Uh, so that that's something that, that kind of also... Um, shows how close, I mean, of course, closeness, but it also shows where the interests lie and uh, how they are being portrayed. And of course, the ideological uh, consonance that is between Hindutva and Zionism. But I would urge people to think about Hindutva, Hindutva being its own animal and beast rather than uh, sort of like deriving from Zionism here and there. It's It's far more... Uh, deep-rooted and far more, um, I would say, like dif different uh, than Zionism. So that's something to consider while we are kind of looking at similarities and comparing things. Um, we will be, the, the cultural part, I think, is really important. It is one of the contemporary changes that we've seen. And we are hoping to have uh, a, a full a full session of that one of one of these one of these talks will be looking at those kind of um yeah those more micro links if you mm -hmm. like uh, and the way in which you see a much more of a a soft a kind of soft version uh where whereas obviously i suppose when we're talking uh in in terms of these kinds of highly militarized zones it's quite important also to you know to re recognize the other side to that to, to the military occupation mm -hmm. um so yeah i'd like to again just thank you and to thank the institute of palestine studies and for those who've joined us um and, and with that i'll say goodbye thank you so much thank you